please be seated with soft hearts. We turn to the 96th Psalm. Sky and then Craig are going to read. Our first reading this morning comes from Psalm 96, starting at verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods and nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Good morning. The second Bible reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Colossians, chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Thanks, Lobby. Well, zombies are taking over the world. Not literally, of course, but on our TV screens, right? Over the last decade, there's been countless TVs and movies, uh, sorry, TV shows and movies, centred on the idea of this global zombie pandemic, right? The Last of Us. It's one of the most popular TV shows in the world right now uh, and it's built on the idea of this kind of global fungus pandemic that takes people over as the protagonists fight to survive. It's not really my idea of a relaxing night in to watch The Last of Us. I prefer a good healthy dose of some friendly reality TV. But it did get me thinking how the Christian life is a bit like a global zombie pandemic. Bear with me, bear with me. Imagine that you wake up one day to find that everyone in the world, every single person, has become the victim of a zombie outbreak overnight, including you. Now imagine that not only has every single person been affected by this outbreak, but even worse, nobody realises that they've been affected by this outbreak except for you. 
Now imagine, and bear with me, this is, my, uh, this is my hypothetical, I can do whatever I want. Now imagine that you have discovered the cure. You have discovered the cure. You have it. You know how to save the lives of every person on the planet. The cure is in your hands. What will you do with it? Would you hold on to it? Would you keep it to yourself? Would you hide it maybe, protect it? Or would you hand it out as widely as you could? Would you let people know how to be saved? My guess is that you would do the latter. I hope you would do the latter. That you would be desperate to hand it out, to share it with everyone that they might also be saved, right? Well, as we continue on in our discipleship series this morning, I want to start by saying that for every disciple of Jesus, this little made-up scenario is not that far from reality. It's actually not that far from the truth of our world. The Bible is very clear that every single person hasn't been affected by a zombie outbreak. No, they've, they've been affected by something much, much worse. Sin. Sin, the rejection of God and his rule. And the Bible says that the consequence of sin is death, judgment and hell. That's pretty serious. But Jesus came in his own words from Luke 19 verse 10 to seek and to save the lost. Right? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to save sinners from death and hell and bring them life. That was his mission. Jesus himself is the cure to the infection of sin. And it's also the same mission that he gave to every disciple, including to us, when he commissioned his followers. Right? He said, Go and make disciples of all nations. Lee shared it with us just before. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's in Matthew 28, right? So let's start on the same page here today. Let's start on the same page this morning. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you have a mission. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you have a mission to go and make disciples to bring the cure of the gospel to sinners. That is my mission, that is your mission, that is every disciple's mission. So if that's the case, well, the question is, where do we go from here, right? Where do we go from here? How do I do it? What's it going to look like in practice for me to take this cure out into the world? And Paul shares the answer with us in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, that we just had read a moment ago. So how about I pray as we dive into the word together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're looking at Colossians today, right? It's a, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And as Paul writes this letter, he sits in a jail cell. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. That's why he is in chains. And the little chunk that we're going to look at today that Craig read out for us a few minutes ago is broken up into two sections. The first is verses 2 to 4, 
where Paul talks about his own mission and the second section is verses 5 to 6 where Paul talks about the Colossians' mission. So let's start in verses 2 to 4. Look at it with me again, verses 2 to 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Hopefully you noticed here that Paul asks for prayer three times in those three short verses. Now I'm not going to go into too much detail on the role of prayer in the life of a disciple. That was last week. Go back and listen. Uh, But I do want to notice what Paul actually prays for here because it's interesting and it's important the things that he asks for prayer. In verse 3, he asks the Colossians to pray that God would open doors for his message. Remember, Paul is sitting in a jail cell, right? He is literally behind a locked door, but he doesn't want prayer that the cell door would open. That's not his prayer. No, his request is that his way would be clear to preach the gospel That's what he wants prayer for. He doesn't care if he does that from a jail cell. He doesn't care if he does it as a free man in the street. What he wants is God-given opportunities to declare the gospel. That's his his prayer. That's what he wants. Now, if, if you come to a house, right, and the doors are locked, you can't get inside unless someone opens the door for you. Every single human being has locked the door on God. We have locked the door on God. That's what sin does. And if we want to bring the gospel to someone and the door is locked, we need it to be opened in order for them to hear it and to receive it. Right? What we learn here from Paul's request is that the way to open doors that are locked to the gospel is not through clever words or with forceful and direct presentations. It's through prayer. It's through prayer. God is the only one who can open the door. God is the only one who can make someone open and ready and willing to hear and receive the gospel. And he's the only one who can provide the opportunity for it to happen. God. That's why Paul's first prayer request is for God to give him opportunities to preach the gospel to people who have had their ears and hearts opened by him. Now, as I said before, uh, in these first few verses, Paul is concerned with his particular role in God's mission, but he actually sees his role as a partnership. He's not a lone wolf, right? His role is a partnership. Paul recognises that within the church, there are some with gifts and opportunities for the public declaration of the gospel, in this case, himself. He recognises that. But his role of public preaching and teaching will be useless if the spiritual doors are not opened by God through the prayers of the church. You may not be the person that is gifted to preach the gospel from a platform or to declare it from a street corner. That's very few of us. But every disciple has a role to play in those contexts. The role of the rest of us is to pray for the people that do those things. 
to pray that God would open doors for them and for the message, right? But if you're sitting back right now and you've gone, phew, that's a load off, all I have to do is pray. I don't have to get up and preach the gospel, that's so good. Pressure off. Well, sorry to tell you, but in the next few verses, Paul makes pretty clear you are not off the hook. Because the next few verses are all about how the Colossians are to go about their mission. Right? Have a look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Before we, before we explore these verses, I just want to make clear that even though these words are spoken to the Colossians, these are also words that apply to us as disciples right now. So the Colossians' mission is also our mission. It's also our mission. Now, I reckon if you look at those two verses again, hopefully you've got them in front of you, uh, verses 5 and 6, Paul lists off a bunch of things to do. What he's doing is he's giving an instruction and then he gives a few ways to achieve it, and then he sort of describes what it'll look like if you get it right. Instruction, directions to achieve it, what it'll look like if you get it right. The instruction that Paul gives to every disciple of Jesus is from verse 5. It's to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel. To make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel. Now, if you look at the way that sentence is structured in the Greek, you could flip it the other way around to make that a bit more clear. In this English version, it's been placed in the second half of the sentence. But I think that is the instruction. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, I'm not a surfer. And I don't claim to be a surfer. But I do love to watch surfing on TV. Competitive surfing, right? What happens in competitive surfing is that uh, a couple of surfers, they'll go out into the water together and they have a time limit. And their job is to catch waves in that time in order to show who is the better surfer, right? And every wave that rolls through is an opportunity for that surfer to make their case. It's an opportunity to make their case. But nothing is more frustrating than watching a surfer sit in the water and let amazing waves roll by unridden. They're too worried sometimes about picking the most perfect, amazing wave that they miss opportunity after opportunity. The surfers I love to watch the most are the ones who are bold and who take every opportunity to catch a wave. Sometimes it's not perfect. It doesn't go the way they want it to go. And sometimes something amazing will happen. But I love watching those surfers because you can't say that they didn't take every chance. They took every opportunity that came their way. This is the sense that Paul wants disciples of Jesus to have. Mission is like surfing. God will put opportunities in front of you to share the gospel with people. He will open doors. Some will be obvious, some won't. Some will be easier than others. Some you'll be expecting and some you won't. But the encouragement here is to make the most of every opportunity. Catch every wave. Share the gospel boldly at every chance. And in order to do that well, to squeeze the most goodness from every opportunity, Paul gives his top three tips in the next verse. Tip number one. Be wise in the way you act 
toward outsiders. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Paul's point here, I think, at the start of verse 5 is pretty clear. Basically, live in such a way that shows how good being a Christian is. Live in such a way that shows how good being a Christian is. It's not just about making sure that we don't paint a bad picture of the gospel in the way that we live, in the way that we relate to unbelievers. It's about painting a true picture of the goodness of the gospel. Let your life and your behaviours and your relationships adorn the gospel. We, are, we get a little bit of a taste of what Paul means in Titus chapter 2, where he's talking about how slaves are to relate to their masters. He says this in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. You can actually put a spotlight on the attractiveness of the gospel if you're wise in the way that you live. You can put a spotlight on the attractiveness of the gospel with your life. Now, I want to be really clear here. Actually speaking the gospel is essential to sharing it. At some point, you must speak the words of the gospel. It's essential But in order to make the most of every opportunity, you also need to act and behave in a way that, for example, doesn't offend people unnecessarily, that isn't hypocritical but is admirable, kind, merciful and loving. Act with integrity. Live in a way that adorns the gospel, that shows off its beauty. So tip number one for making the most of every opportunity to share the gospel is be thoughtful and careful and intentional about how you live so that you can show that the gospel is attractive. Tip number two, let your conversation be full of grace. Let your conversation be full of grace. The first thing to note here in verse six is that Paul sees our mission in sharing the gospel happening in conversation. Right? In back and forth, in speaking and in listening, in discussion. Right? Paul envisages God's people conversing about the gospel with unbelievers. But conversation is never easy. Right? It's actually a really delicate art form, especially about a topic like the gospel, which has high stakes and big personal impact. And so Paul says, if you want to make the most of every conversation for sharing the gospel, then you need to speak with grace. You need to speak with grace. Disciples of Jesus are people that are saved by grace. We saw that in week one of this series, right? And just like an apple tree grows apples, a disciple saved by grace speaks with grace, right? You can check out Matthew 12.33 to hear Jesus talk more about that idea. So Paul is saying not only should the content of your conversation be grace, but you must also speak with grace. Think about it. A faithful explanation of the gospel is confronting. It is. It's confronting. It brings people face to face with their own sin. 
The gospel is a beautiful and life-giving message, but it is also a confronting message. If we want to make the most of every opportunity to engage in our mission of sharing the gospel, then we need to speak of grace with grace. Let me say that again. We need to speak of grace with grace. I remember watching uh, our previous Archbishop Peter Jensen on the ABC program Q&A. It was many years ago now, but you can still find it on the ABC website. Uh, And he was getting really what I would call attacked by one particular panellist for, in her words, this is pretty much a direct quotation, proudly flying the colours of his misogynistic, medieval and discriminatory religion. But Peter spoke with grace in response. His words were kind and measured patient and respectful and I remember sitting there and seeing tweets coming up on the bottom of the screen Twitter was this old thing that existed back in the day where people could like write messages on their phones and they'd come up live on the TV anyway I remember seeing tweets come up on the screen from openly professing atheists saying that they had gained a lot of respect for Christians after hearing the way that Peter spoke and responded speak with kindness with patience, with understanding, with a willingness to listen and seek to understand, with love, with mercy, not with a sharp tongue or a desire to prove a point. Now, this is a bit of hyperbole, but hear the point. No one was ever won for the gospel by losing an argument. No one was ever won for the gospel by losing an argument. Let your conversation be full of grace, not just the content, but the manner too. Tip number three, let your words be seasoned with salt. Let your words be seasoned with salt. I learned long ago that if someone serves you dinner, you shouldn't put salt on it before you've had a taste, right? Because if you do, if you put salt on before trying it, Right, the implication is that you don't trust the cook to have seasoned the food correctly, right? Because salt makes food taste better. Personally, I think that it's much more offensive to add salt after tasting it, but hey, I'm no etiquette coach. When Paul says, let your words be seasoned with salt, he's using an ancient Greek saying. It's an idiom, which means to speak with wit or with cleverness to add some seasoning, right? To make it exciting, like adding a sprinkle of salt to your food. Now, I don't think he's necessarily saying that we have to be witty or funny in the way that we present the gospel, though that's not a bad thing. It's just that not all of us are built that way, and that's okay. I think what he means, though, is that we ought to make sure that as we speak the truths of the gospel, that it isn't boring or bland or dull. Speak in a way that compels interest and captures attention, right? And the way to do that is to love the truth that you speak. To love the truth that you speak. And you can't fake that. You can't fake it. The very best teachers that I ever had in high school and uni and Bible college were not the ones who were the smartest or the funniest. The best teachers were the ones who loved their subject so much that their excitement and their enthusiasm to pass on this thing that they love just burst out of them. And that sparked an interest in me, right? That's why they were great teachers. 
Your gospel conversation will never be seasoned with salt unless you love the gospel yourself. Like I said, you can't fake that, but here's what you can do. Every day, open the word and look for reasons why you love the gospel. Remind yourself of what convinced you that this was the right choice to make. Ask God to fill you fresh every single day with a renewed and deeper love for him and for his saving grace. And then let your passion and your excitement spill out of you as you share it with others, right? Don't be ashamed or embarrassed to speak fondly or excitedly about Jesus or the gospel. Let that come out of you. There is no shame in being excited about Jesus. Let your words be seasoned with salt. And finally, Paul says that if you combine all of the above, the result, right, the best expression of making the most of every opportunity is that you will be able to answer everyone so that you may be able to answer everyone. The sharing of the gospel is both simple and complex. It's both simple and complex. It's simple because the message of the gospel always stays the same. It is always the same. It's complex because every single person and every single situation and every single opportunity is different. But if our mission from Jesus is to go and make disciples, right, of all nations, we have to figure out how do we reach every person where they're at? That's our job to figure that out. Sometimes the door that God will open will be a topic that someone raises in conversation that opens the door for you to present the gospel. Sometimes the door that God will open will be that someone asks you a question that you have to respond to. Sometimes the person that God has placed before you will have an expert knowledge of the Bible. Sometimes the person that God has placed before you will have never looked at a Bible before in their life. But the best way to respond in all situations that God puts before us is to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders, to speak of grace with grace, to let our passion and our excitement for the gospel overflow from us as we speak and to genuinely care enough about that person to share with them what we think will be valuable for them to hear. We're not always going to do that perfectly. We won't, but that's okay. Because the good news is that God opens the doors and God changes the hearts and God does the saving. God opens the doors. God changes the hearts. God does the saving. But the exciting news is that as disciples of Jesus we all get to be a part of that mission. We get to be bold in our mission. We get to share the cure of the gospel with people who don't have it yet. That is the joy, the privilege and the mission of every true disciple of Jesus. Be bold in your mission to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have a heart to seek and to save the lost. Thank you that you let your disciples be a part of your mission. 
Please help us to be bold, to make the most of every opportunity, to act with wisdom, to speak with grace and with passion, and to be able to answer every person that you place before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.